Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And before the true crime podcast begins, a word from our sponsor. Support for the true crime podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your crown jewels. Manscaped just launched the fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free Worldwide shipping with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N-20, at manscaped.com. In Arizona, because of the heat, I worked hard shaving off this ape-like fur coat of body hair. I sure wish I had Manscaped back then. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0 and I'm blown away by the performance. The craftsmanship and details on the 4.0 are next level. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N 20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code SEAN20, S-H-A-U-N 20 at manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job, in this case, the nut job, at manscaped.com. So, I'm excited today. We are on the fringe of the East End at, what's this place called, Richard? It's actually St. Peter's on Cornhill. Ooh, <laughs> we're about to embark on our adventure into Jack the Ripper territory. But I'm not flying solo. I have with me today one of the world's leading ripperologists, Richard Jones. And he has been recommended to us by a junior ripperologist known as Jamie Boyle, who has sent us many of our podcast guests. So huge shout out to Jamie and his links as well as Richard's will be in the description box below this video. So I urge you to support their work. So what got you interested in the ripper, Richard? Well, funnily enough, I wasn't, initially I wasn't interested in Jack the Ripper. It was Charles Dickens was my interest. Ah. Uh, now, Charles Dickens spent a lot of time in the East End of London. Uh, he was fascinated by the, the, almost the depravity that he encountered in the East End of London. So I was studying Dickens. The thing with the East End of London is that inevitably you'll come across Jack the Ripper. Now, I'd always thought Jack the Ripper is just talking about five murders. It's just gruesome murders. It's, uh, yeah, it's not something that really interested me. But then I suddenly realised, no, it isn't just about that. It, ex 
it, it, it opens up this fantastic vista where you can look back on a bygone age and you can really look at London because the newspapers covered the Jack the Ripper murders. The philanthropists used the Jack the Ripper murders to try and get social change in the area. The police were fumbling their way through the investigation trying to catch Jack the Ripper. So suddenly you've got police history, true crime history, you've got newspaper history, you've got social history, and it's all in that 12-week period. And you've got that 12-week where, you, because of the newspaper coverage, you can look through a lens on those 12 weeks and effectively be taken back in time. And that's what I loved about it. Wow, let's set the scene a bit then. So here we are, you know, we've got our devices, we've got the internet, we've got our street lights. But um, here in this part of London, we've got ancient gravestones like what are behind us here. Could you just let the viewers know what London was like back then during the Ripper murders and what exact time period of history was that? Well, the time period we're talking about is 19th century. The murders took place in 1888. It's all in 88. All in 88. So the first murder is August 31st, 1888. The final murder is the 9th of November, 1888. So it's a period around about maybe 10 weeks uh, that the Ripper murders occur. London at the time was a divided city, really what it's always been and what it is today, what it was then. It's a, a city where you had, where we are now, we're just on the fringe of the east end of London, we're in the city of London, this is the financial heart of London, this is the square mile, this is the boiler house that, po- that powered the expansion of the empire at the time. So th- this was a very rich square mile, as it is today. But then you just went over, the, as we will do, you just cross the border and you had some of the most poverty-stricken enclaves in London. You had places where entire families would live in one room. This might be 15 people sharing a room. And if they fell on hard times, they would take in a lodger. And when I say take in a lodger, they wouldn't rent out the spare room. They'd rent out the spare corner of the room that the entire family lived in. Uh, you had places where there was no running water going into the houses. You had it... Is this when people were throwing the business out of their windows. Stops getting, yes, stops getting, I mean, it, it is starting to change, but there's part of the East End of London could even still be the medieval city. Uh, it, and, but you've also got, it was the area that people ended up in. So in other words, if you fell through the net of society, there was nothing to catch you, no welfare state, nothing like that. So you tended to gravitate to where like-minded people were, and that tends to be the East End of London. So you had the East End of London got this reputation for being one of the poorest parts of London. Now, in fairness, parts of the East End were as respectable and as wealthy as parts of the West End of London. But because you had this little area around Whitechapel High Street where you had places like Fashion Street, you had Flower and Dean Street, George Street, Dorset Street, all of which at one stage or another were called the worst street in London by the newspapers of the day, that's what the newspapers focused on. So the newspapers helped create an image of the East End of London as being a danger to everybody else. And then suddenly into that mix comes this serial killer who starts murdering women right on the doorstep of the city of London. So the killer came to, if you like, be the personification of all these nebulous fears that people already had about the East End of London. And then suddenly the Ripper comes into the equation he murders in the East End of London, well, that's bad enough. But then murder number four, Catherine Eddowes, takes place in Mitre Square, which is in the city of London. So the Ripper has crossed the boundary. And if the Ripper can cross the boundary, then all these other things can cross the boundary. So Jack the Ripper scared people in a way that no killer had done before, probably no killer's done since. Yeah, so I'm thinking of these streets back in this Victorian era, perhaps the odd gas light... Um, here and there, but pretty 
a pretty dark, foggy, um, smoggy place to be, whereby if it's nighttime, you can get away with anything. Did the Ripper time these murders for when darkness fell? We don't, obviously we can't say for certain, but it would seem to be that's the case. He would go out into the early hours, and of course that's when he would meet his victims. Now, contrary to, the, the, there's been a lot of rewriting history lately, uh, saying the victims weren't prostitutes, but the evidence suggests that they, that, uh, I, I don't like the word prostitute to be used for them, because they weren't what we would think of as working girls today. They were Sex workers is the politically correct term yeah. these days, isn't it? But I, I, I prefer the Victorian term for them, unfortunates, because these were women who'd fallen through the net, and they had to get the money to survive. They had to make money for food, for drink, because they were all alcoholics as well, and to pay for a bed in a lodging house, four pence. So you'd basically do anything to get that money. And the evidence suggests that that's what they did. So, of course, they would go out into the early hours, which is when the Ripper happened to be prowling. You've got... Some of the main streets, the main thoroughfares, are brightly lit. Uh, Whitechapel Road was fantastic. It was, it was, a, it was a, uh, a, a blaze with light. But you just step off it into places like Bucks Row and uh, uh, Winthrop Street, places like that, and you're going into uh, dark streets. So much so, the press at the time used to often refer to it as darkest London. And, uh, and they talked about it in terms that we today would talk if we were visiting, some, say, third world countries. That's what they talked about the East End of London life. So that's what it was seen as. So imagine if you were walking down one of those streets at night then, what would you encounter? Was it a rough and tumble environment where people are spilling out of pubs and having fights and there's sailors and there's robbers and there's thieves? Yep. What, what, could you expand on that? Yeah, that's more or less what it would be like. So you, if, say you walk down one of the streets, some of the streets would be very quiet at night. Other streets, though, you'd have people coming out of the pubs. You'd have homeless people who are sleeping in the doorways. You'd have people walking up and down. You'd have muggers. I mean, uh, the, 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 you'd have people going round. Uh, the, the, the gangs would be, I mean, there were a lot of gangs in the area. Uh, they would also pick on prostitutes as well and try and extort money off them. So, and... Uh, there's, there's some streets where you went down there where even the police wouldn't dare go down unless they were two or three strong. That's how bad their reputation was, some of those streets. You had criminal enclaves. You had the common lodging houses there, which were the last resort before the street for the destitute poor. Mm. But you also had a lot of criminals in the common lodging houses. People released from asylums, lunatic asylums, they would go into the common lodging houses. One of my one of the most evocative reports from a newspaper is that they're talking about one of the cellars in one of the streets around Hanbury Street. And they said that there's people live in the cellars in that area who only ever come out at night. There's a whole nocturnal populace. It's almost like a horror film wow. <laughs> coming out of cellars <laughs> That's at crazy. night. And, and then you have butchers, so there's butchers in the district. Remember, there's no refrigeration in those days, so meat is killed as close to when you're going to eat it as it can be, which is often means it's killed in the early hours. So you've got people walking around in blood-stained clothing, blood on their hands. It's not unusual to see that. You've got blood running down the gutters. Then you've got the muggers out there. You've got... Uh, it really was. I mean, you literally took your, your, your life in your hands if you went down some of those streets if you didn't belong in the area. And, didn't, and even if you did live in the area, it was still dangerous to go down some of those streets at night. Uh, so much so that, believe it or not... People used to, journalists, uh, American visitors, used to hire police officers to take them on guided tours because they wanted to see these streets that they'd read about. You know, are they that bad? And they'd get taken out. And, and they'd often, a lot of policemen actually did, yeah, would double up as tour guides in their spare time. Wow. And how did the robbers operate back then? I imagine 
um, stand and deliver and a guy draws a pistol with a neckerchief or is that a cliche? That's a bit of a cliche. It, it probably a bit before that. but okay. uh, No, literally, they, they do things like, uh, I mean, one of the common ways was to sort of walk up behind you uh, and then sort of... Uh, what somebody might come up and say, what's the time? You know, have you got the time? You might go for your pocket watch and then there'd be somebody else would grab you from behind. And then of course, you'd, uh, they, they, they'd stretch, some people got stripped by the robbers. You know, they'd take all their clothing uh, and stuff like that. And they could always escape into the common lodging houses. That was the thing, because a lot of the common lodging houses were in league with the criminals. So they could get into those common lodging houses. And, uh, you know, police intelligence, was such that they, they would know which common lodging houses which criminals went into. Uh, and this is with Jack the Ripper. They are, they, a lot of the police thought he, he's living in one of the common lodging houses. Uh, the thing was that they, they rapidly, very early on in the investigation, they thought it was gang-related, that the gangs were, were, were committing the murders to warn prostitutes if you don't give them money. But they very quickly got rid of that theory and settled on a lone assassin because, as they found out, the gangs were just as annoyed by him as, <laughs> as, the, as the police were because there were so many police in the area, the criminals couldn't operate. So they wanted him caught as quickly as possible as well. So everybody was trying to catch this person, and yet he slipped through the net. And we see the busy roads of London today, but if you were looking down a road back then, what would you see? People mostly on foot, the odd horse, carriages... You'd see people on foot. So uh, Whitechapel Road, you see a lot of horse and carriages. Uh, in the back streets, you see a lot of people on foot. You see a lot of people sitting outside their houses. People used to sit outside because the houses are so uh, cramped inside and so smelly that it was much pleasanter to sit outdoors. So people would sit outside the, uh, the, uh, in their streets. Some of the streets you'd look down at night and you wouldn't see another person. Uh, some of the streets you'd see people huddled in doorways. You'd see nefarious characters skulking around. Uh, they'd be eyeing you up as much as you'd be eyeing them up. And they were thinking, you know, can I risk it? Can I risk uh, sort of stealing his watch or mugging him as he goes past? Uh, and, uh, and, and through all this, Jack Ripper sort of moving in and out, not getting noticed as, uh, at all as well. So it's... Uh, I'm also wondering what the fashions were back then. I imagine like whalebone corsets and parachute, <laughs> parachute-sized skirts. Probably in the west end of London, but in the east end of London, you wore what you got. You wore what you could afford. Uh, second-hand clothes were the, were the order of the day. People would go and buy second-hand. So cloth caps, they were quite popular. Uh, when we see the photographs, we see them in sort of... Women used to wear a lot of shawls. Uh, women in the common lodging houses tended to wear aprons as well. The, um, if you look at a lot of the old photographs, you'll see women wearing long white aprons going down to their ankles. Uh, and they had big pockets. Uh, the reason being that if they lived in common lodging houses, it was a transient populace. So you wouldn't have... No, for certain, you had your bed from one night to the next. So you would keep all your possessions in the pockets of your, of your white apron. Uh, and we know with the victims, I mean, Catherine Eddowes, uh, her apron had been cut through uh, and part of her apron taken away. And that part of the apron was found in a doorway later on. And the killer had wiped his hands on it and wiped the blade of his knife on it and then dropped it in the doorway. That doorway was in Goulston Street in the east end of London. So that suggests he was somebody who went east after Catherine Eddowes' murder, which points to somebody living in the area. What was the population size of London back then? London's population was uh, probably, by that time, you'd probably gone up to just maybe just around about one and three quarter million, um, maybe approaching two million uh, in London. Uh, the east end of London, round where the murders were, probably a population of around about 67,000. And what about policing techniques back then? How were they? <laughs> <laughs> the, the policing techniques were... Uh, more or less what, probably what they would do today with, with, a, with a serial killer such as Jack the Ripper. Obviously, they didn't have fingerprinting, they didn't have uh, forensics, uh, didn't have CCTV to help them, but they had a lot of local knowledge. So the police officers in those days, 
before you could become a, a detective, you had to work your way up to being a detective. So you had to spend at least three years on the beat as a constable before you could then be considered for promotion to sergeant, and then you'd go through that, and then you could be considered to be a detective, by which time you'd got to know everything about the area. You'd had your same beat. And so the police methods were, when there was a murder, as today, who's got the motive? Uh, nine times out of ten, it's going to be somebody they know. So they start looking at the, the, the close pattern of friends. Friends. Well, who's, you know, have they got a lover who's a jealous lover? Is there something like that? Obviously, with these, there wasn't, they were opportunist killings. So the police then had to sort of start asking around the area. Did you see anything? Did you see anybody suspicious been around here? Anyone questioning? Uh, again, he didn't know the victim, so that, that, that line of inquiry fell flat very quickly on. Uh, so the only thing the police could do at the time was they could put lots of police officers into the area, which is what they did. Some of them were put in in uniform, some of them went in plain clothes. Uh, the joke about the plain clothes police officers was they, they always kept their policemen's boots on. So you, you could always tell who the plain clothes were. And we know of at least one police officer who actually dressed up as a woman to try and catch Jack Revolver, PC Robinson. And we know that because he got spotted by several cab washers at King's Cross. Uh, he said he was looking at a suspect. And these cab washers came up, here, you're a man. And he said, just go away, I'm a police officer. And, and they said, you're a man. And, and suddenly he takes his truncheon out from under his skirts and starts lays, lays into them. And this ends up in court. So, and the beauty of this story is it's a guy called PC Robinson. Um, he's spotted by the cameras. It then goes to court and he said, well, I, was, I, I just put on a woman's hat and shawl to go and keep the... I heard about a suspect, so I dressed as a woman, put on this woman's hat. Nobody ever asked asked him why. <laughs> the, the, as far as I can tell, there was no real reason to do it. So nobody actually, well, why did you put this as a woman? And, and worse still, nobody actually said what outfit he wore for court either. <laughs> right, we are about to go to five different locations of actual murder scenes. And Richard is going to take us through each one and describe exactly what happened. If you do want to go on this tour, Richard's links are in the description box below this video. Let's go. Okay. <laughs> so here we are on our way to the five murder scenes on the Jack the Ripper tour with Richard Jones. We're in a passageway that has been used in various movies, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been in The, Mum, uh, the Mummy with Tom Cruise. It's been in uh, SS Great Britain. Uh, they, they're often filming around here. Uh, Pre-COVID, you could come down here every weekend, there'd be some sort of filming going on. You walked onto Peaky Blinders has been filmed <laughs> in the area when they come down to London for the club scene. So uh, lots and lots of films down here. It's, it's, it's amazing. Fast and Furious. They, really? Fast and Furious the other year was filmed just out there wow, on Cornhill. Wow. So, so uh, on our way to these murder scenes, I'm curious as to who these women were, the victims. So Richard is going to tell us a little bit about each of the five. Well, the first victim was Mary Nichols. Uh, Mary Nichols was in her early 40s. Uh, she'd actually been born, or she actually born just off Fleet Street. Uh, she then married, she married a printer by the name of William Nichols. She had quite a respectable life. Uh, they ended up living with a fa they had a family. They ended up living in the Peabody buildings. But then she, got, she started turning to drink. She became an alcoholic. And this became a common pattern with all the victims. In the end, she abandoned the family. She left the family and ended up living in the East End of London. And she ended up, live, well, 
alternating between common lodging houses, moving around London, but then she gravitated to the east end of London and ended up living in a common lodging house, or lodging in a common lodging house. And the way these places worked was that you paid fourpence for a single bed, eightpence for a double bed, and if you didn't have the money, there was no credit, you were out on the street. And on the night of the 30th of August, 1888, she didn't have the money, so she was thrown out of the lodging house. But she basically, she, she'd made the money, she boasted to a friend of hers, she'd made the money several times over, but she spent it on drink. Alcoholism was the root of her problem, and the fact she didn't have fourpence. And this was one of the tragedies that, had she had that fourpence, she wouldn't have met Jack the Ripper. Okay, so who was number two? Number two was Annie Chapman. Annie Chapman, again, she, when I say she was, she, she was reasonably, came from a reasonably affluent background. I say affluent, I mean, she's probably sort of working class, but reasonably working class. And she lived out in Windsor for a time. They lived, her and her husband lived, lived around London. Then they separated. And her husband used to pay her a fee, uh, an amount of money each week, paid maintenance to her. But then he died and the maintenance money stopped. Mm. So she ended up doing anything she could to survive. She did crochet work. She sold money on street corners. She seems to have been quite a feisty lady as well. We, one of the things we do know is that shortly before her death, uh, when her body was found, she had bruising around her face and chest, uh, which they thought might have been a result of the murder, but it turned out it wasn't. That In the lodging house she was lodging in on Dorset Street, she'd got into a fight with another lodger, and they'd had uh, real fisticuffs in this fight, and that had left her battered and bruised, and she was quite ill for that last week of her life. Uh, she went to the infirmary for a time, came out of the infirmary, uh, sorry, out of the infirmary, then went back to her lodging house. Again, she didn't have the money to pay for a bed, and she was escorted from the premises, uh, and straight into the arms of Jethro. What's interesting about her is this is when the press started to notice that both victims had died because they didn't have fourpence to pay for a bed. And you start to get this change in the attitude of the media. So it was after Annie Chapman's murder that the newspaper started to take notice of the plight of the victims because now they realise that these two women had died because they didn't have fourpence to pay for a bed. Common, common, common comment in the press was they died for the sake of fourpence. And there's a, quite a famous article in the Telegraph where they talk about Dark Annie's spirit will not, walk in will not walk in vain if, by her death, we learn that what, what it must be like to sit there, friendless and alone, in the kitchen of a common lodging house, be turned out after nightfall, so after midnight you're turned out onto the streets, and in trying to raise the money to pay for a bed, you meet your assassin. Uh, and that's effectively what happened. I, I think they said it was em embrace your assassin. Uh, which is effectively what she, what she would have had to have done. Oh dear, it's a tragedy, isn't it? Who was the third victim? The third one was Elizabeth Stride. Now, she's quite an interesting victim because she was Swedish. Uh, she was actually born in Sweden. And uh, her name was, or uh, her maiden name was Elizabeth Gust Gustav's daughter, which means uh, Gustav's daughter. Her father was named Gustav. Uh, she then came to London and she married a chap called, uh, called Stride. So they got married in St. Giles Church over, in, uh, over towards Tottenham Court Road, just off Oxford Street. They then had a coffee shop in the uh, east end of London. And then she starts drinking as well, and the marriage falls apart. Uh, he, he died early on in the 1880s. But then she ends up living in a lodging house in Flower and Dean Street. And we do know on the afternoon of her death, she spent that afternoon cleaning in the lodging house. She was paid at six o'clock. She then went to the pub, a pub called the Queen's Head, which was on Commercial Street, had a few drinks, went back to the lodging house, and then went out for the night. And we can trace her through that night. She's seen at several pubs around Whitechapel. And then, she's met, and then we next pick her up, uh, Burner Street. She's there just after midnight. She's around Burner Street. And then she's seen by a man called Israel Schwartz. And then her body's found in a dark gateway. After, but again, 
she was out drinking that night, and uh, she was an she was quite an interesting victim in that it took longer to identify her because this lady called Mary Malcolm came forward and said that at the time that the murder took place, she was lying in bed. She lived in Red Lion Square in Holborn. She says, I was lying in bed, and I got this, I, and I suddenly felt movement, and I felt a kiss on my cheek. And I woke up and there was no... But she, then she read about the murder and was convinced it was her sister, Elizabeth Watts, who'd been murdered. So she went to the mortuary and identified the victim as Elizabeth Watts, her sister. Now, everybody said, no, it's Elizabeth Stride. But she said, no, no, it's my sister, Elizabeth Watts. And the only way that was solved was when Elizabeth Watts, her sister, actually walked into oh, court, and, into the coroner's court, and said, I don't know, why is she saying it's me? I, I, I'm, I'm, li I'm living a, in, in a respectable life in Tottenham, and now my neighbours are talking, saying that I'm, I'm living in sin and everything. Uh, so then she took longer to identify than the other victims. But again, it's, uh, alcoholism lived, was behind her, her uh, plight uh, and saw her end up on the east end of London. How about victim number four? Number four was Catherine Eddowes. Now, she again, uh, Cat Catherine Eddowes had a, uh, well, she had a boyfriend called John Kelly, and they'd gone down hop picking. They'd gone down to Kent to go hop picking. And it was a, uh, 1888 was a very wet summer. It's one of the wettest summers we've ever had. And the hop, hop crop wasn't very good. So they came back on the 29th of September, came back to London. They then separated. They managed to get some money and they separated. Kelly went to spend the night in a lodging house. Catherine Eddowes went to spend the night in the workhouse, uh, casual ward of the workhouse. They then, Saturday morning, she came back and they met up and they pawned his boots and they got some money and they managed to get some breakfast. And then she said to him in the afternoon that she was going to go and see her daughter. So they pawned John Kelly's boots. Uh, so they went to a pawn shop and they pawned his boots to get some money, used that money to get breakfast. Then that afternoon she told him she was going to go down and try and find her daughter in Bermondsey and get some money off her daughter. And he, one of the things he said to her was, uh, just be careful, careful of the Whitechapel murderer. She said, oh, I don't need to be afraid of him. Uh, and she went off. Now, we don't know what happened to her because she certainly didn't see her daughter because her daughter had moved to avoid her because she was fed up of being her mother trying to scrounge money off her. Uh, she didn't, certainly didn't see her daughter, but she got money somehow because that night she was found drunk on Allgate High Street by a, man, uh, a police constable, Robinson, from the city police. Uh, he found her trying to entertain the crowd on Allgate High Street. And he said, does anyone know this woman? And they said, no, we don't know her. And he said so he propped her up and she promptly stood her down. He then took her into Bishopsgate Police Station. This is the tragedy of Catherine Eddowes. She got drunk in the city of London. So she was actually drunk in the city of London. A little bit further, maybe, maybe 20 yards further along, she would have been in the East End. She'd have been drunk in metropolitan police territory. The City of London has its own police force. Both police forces had different ways of dealing with drunks. Metropolitan police method was they'd arrest you and you'd be put in court the next day and probably fined. City police couldn't be bothered with all that. They wanted to investigate financial frauds. So consequently, they would put you in the cell until you sobered up and then they'd release you. Her tragedy is... She was arrested by the city police. She'd sobered up by midnight and they released her at one o'clock in the morning and out she went and she met Jack the Ripper. Right into the hands of the right Ripper. Right into the hands of the Ripper. What about number five, the final victim? Number five is Mary Kelly. She's the youngest of the victims. All the others were in their um, late 30s, early 40s. She's the most enigmatic of the victims as well. We know virtually nothing about her background. Uh, the story she told to her lover, uh, Joseph Barnett, 
uh, who lived with her till shortly before her murder, she told him that she'd been born in Limerick in Ireland, that she then, the family had then moved to Wales, that she'd married a Welsh miner who'd then been killed in a mining accident. She'd then gone to Cardiff to live with a cousin who'd, who'd uh, introduced her to prostitution. She then came to London and met a very high-class lady in London and uh, went with a gentleman to Paris. She went to work in Paris, or went with this gentleman to Paris. Didn't like Paris, so came back and became, uh, in the West End of London, became quite a high-class prostitute in the West End of London. But then, for some reason, went to the West, East End of London uh, and then met, she met this man, Joseph Barnett, uh, and then they moved in together. Uh, and really, is all we know about her is, is that, what, what she told him. So we know nothing about her background. When she was murdered, we do have press records saying that they're waiting for her family to arrive for her funeral before they can bury her. But the family never did arrive. I don't think the family were ever traced. So we literally know nothing about Mary Kelly's background. We, uh, the others, we, you know, we, we know where they come from. We can get birth certificates. But there's nothing about Mary Kelly. She's the most enigmatic victims. So off we go then to the five murder locations. Come with us. And where is the first murder lo location we're going to now? We're going to make our way to the east end of London. We're going to cross the border and we're heading to Durwood Street, which in 1888 was called Bucks Row. Right, let's do it. Okay. So, how exciting. Here we are. Murder scene number one, Jack the Ripper tour. We've got one of the world's leading ripperologists. That's a new word to me. Jamie Boyle, huge thank you to him for introducing me to Richard. And Richard is going to give us the details of what went down at this murder scene. So thanks for doing this, Richard. Thank you. And what happened to ripper victim number one here? Well, this is Durwood Street, but in 1888 it was called Bucks Row. And where these flats are today, this was a line of cottages. And it was at 3.40 in the morning on August the 31st, 1888, a man named Charles Cross was walking along this side of Bucks Row. So he was coming along here on his way to work. And he got to just up here on the left where he saw there's a gateway. And he saw something lying in the gateway. And his first thought was that it was a tarpaulin. It, was a, it might make a useful cover for his wagon. He could use it to cover his head. He could put it over his lap. And so he went over to have a look at it. And he stopped when he saw it was a woman lying on the ground. And he was standing there, and he heard footsteps coming up from this side. And he turned around, and there was another man called Robert Paul approaching. And he called him over, and he said, there's a woman here. And they went over, and they stooped down. And they held their hands. They, uh, one of them leant close to her mouth to see if she was breathing. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of them, as he did so, managed to touch her chest as well and it moved. And he said, I think she's breathing, but very little if she is. And at that point, Robert Paul suggested they sit the woman up. But Charles Cross, the one who discovered the body, he now realised she was dead and was disgusted at the thought of touching the body any further. So he said, now, and this is when they made a bizarre decision because they were late for work now because they'd stopped. And so their decision was, well, we're late for work. If she's dead, there's nothing we can do. So they pulled her, her skirts were up round her waist and they pulled them back down over her knees and they went on their way to, saying they'd tell the first policeman they met of what they'd found. 
gives you some idea of how dark it was here. Despite the fact they'd been so close to the body, neither of them had noticed that her throat had been cut back to her spine. That discovery was made by PC John Neal, who came down Bucks Row just after they left the scene. He had a lantern, and he shone the lantern onto the body, and he saw what they'd missed, the cut to the throat. He then saw PC Thane walking past this corner here, so he waved his lantern at him, got his attention. PC Thane came running, and he said, look, there's a woman here, go and get Dr. Llewellyn. So the nearest medic was Dr. Ralph Llewellyn. They brought him to the scene, he pronounced life extinct, and then said to the police, take her to the mortuary, I'll make a further examination there. So she was wheeled off to the Whitechapel uh, workhouse, uh, workhouse Infirmary Mortuary. And there, at 5.30 in the morning, Inspector Spratling of the police's G Division... Spratling. To, <laughs> Inspector Spratling. He, t he turned up. Uh, he'd actually come to the scene. He was over on Hackney Road. And he got, he got told there'd been a murder. So he came to the scene. The body had already been moved less than an hour. And the body had been taken away. So he went to the mortuary. And he took down a description of the deceased woman. And he lifted the skirts back up. That's when he discovered something that everybody had missed. Beneath all her bloodstained clothing, a deep gash ran all the way along her abdomen. She'd been disemboweled. Mm. And this was the start of the Jack the Ripper murders. Mm. Her name was Mary Nichols. She was in her 40s. And uh, again, so she was in her 40s. And she'd been turned out of a common lodging house. The common lodging houses were where the, the destitute poor lived. It was either that or the streets. And they paid fourpence for a bed. And she didn't have the fourpence to pay for a bed. She'd gone out into the night, obviously trying to earn the fourpence. And in fact, one of the things she said as she left the lodging house, she had this bonnet that no one had ever seen her with before. And as she left the lodging house, she turned back to the lodge, deputy lodging house keeper, who was escorting her from the premises. And she said, I'll see and get the dust money, see what a jolly bonnet I'm wearing. That bonnet now lay in a blood, pool of blood here in Bucks Row. Of course, what they didn't know at the time, this was the start of the Jack the Ripper murders. This was the start of the autumn of terror. Wow. Now, when you said about the skirts being raised up, what comes to my mind, I'm wondering, were these murders just done for the, the, the thrill of murdering someone, or did it also include a sexual assault? As far as we know, se there was no sexual assault. Uh, several doctors who examined the body said there was no evidence of a sexual assault. It seems to have been that the killer had simply done it for the pleasure of those mutilations. And this is what started to frighten people. They could understand the crime that had a motive. Had the women been robbed, they could understand that. Had the women been assaulted, they could understand that. But this had just been done for the pleasure of doing these horrible things to these women. And that's what started to get the newspapers and through the newspapers the people. And it really created a panic that uh, got worse and worse as each murder progressed. With the rest of the victims then, the way the killer had done these horrible things to the bodies, was that repeat, a repeated pattern throughout the murders? It was a repeated pattern throughout, and it got worse with each killing. Uh, and uh, as we'll see as we go through our tour today, it gets to the next one where you get a, another element of uh, disembowelment. You get body parts removed. Then you get one where the victim, uh, or the murderer, sorry, is interrupted in the process of the murder. So that's just a throat cutting. But then you get another one where he starts targeting the face. And then you come to the final one where he's skinned the body down to the bone. Good grief. And why do you think they get worse? Because I, I watched a lot about Ted Bundy, and it seemed like they have to get worse and worse to fulfill this addictive tendency to do these horrible things at the end of it Bundy just runs into this I think like a sorority house or something and, and kills these women bludgeons them does all these things um, do you think that's the case the need for the, the gruesome activity to fulfill whatever it is they've got gets 
darker and darker. I think there's an element of that. The, obviously, he wants to the the, the, the thrill. The thrill. To, it's like a drug, isn't it? It's it, the, the thrill wears off. You've, you've got to you've got to increase the thrill. But also, I think there's an element of timing as well. He's an opportunist killing. He doesn't know his victims. So, uh, he, and also, it's out on the streets. The important thing about the victims that he chose is that he chose, as far as we can tell, they were all prostitutes. And the point is that they were street prostitutes. So they knew the places to take clients to where they weren't going to be interrupted. So it wasn't him that chose the murder sites, it was the victims that chose the murder sites. Oh my so in effect, they, they chose where they were going to be murdered. And of course, because they've chosen places that they know when the next policeman's going to be around, they know that they're not going to be interrupted. So of course, they've effectively chosen the perfect site for their murders. With him, he's opportunist. He knows there could be a policeman along any minute, so he's got to be uh, quicker and quicker. Uh, the interesting thing is that as it progresses, I think he gains in confidence. He gets more confidence with his killing until you get to the final one, as we'll see later in the tour, where that's a murder that's committed indoors. It's the only one that's committed indoors. She's the only victim who has a room, and so he's got time there. There's no danger of interruption, and that was the most gruesome of them all. That's what I was going to ask next, then. If they're choosing the ideal murder sites, does that mean he can therefore take his time with them or does he have to kill him quickly anyway to get away from the scene? I think there's always going to be an element he's got to do it quickly because obviously he doesn't know when somebody's going to come along the scene. The evidence suggests that Mary, Nichol, Mary Nichols, the first, the first victim here, that she may well have still been alive when Charles Cross discovered her. There's also a theory that uh, you'll find a lot on the internet that Charles Cross was in fact Jack the Ripper. Uh, all the murders took place on his way to work, uh, on his route to work, so, so the theory goes. Uh, and this, uh, he, he discovered the body and that he was interrupted by the second man, Robert Paul, coming along here. Uh, personally, I don't hold with that theory, but then again, uh, there's nothing to say that that theory can't be correct because we don't know who Jack the Ripper was. So I always like to say the one certainty about Jack the Ripper is nothing is certain. <laughs> OK, and then from the amount of time he spent with them, when the murder commenced, from your research, how many minutes do you think he spent doing whatever he would do? I think a very short amount of time. I, I think probably, for example, with one of the victims, we know that uh, with, this is Catherine Eller, who's the fourth victim. We know that that probably... he. he murdered her and carried out the mutilations in less than 15 minutes. Wow. So it's, uh, it's very quick indeed. Uh, the evidence suggests that he did asphyxiate the victims first. So in other words, he's not going to get covered in blood at the scene of the murder because the heart stopped beating. They'd been asphyxiated first. He must have been very powerful. The other thing, of course, that a lot of people forget about this is that, and I, I don't mean to use this term loosely, but he must have been quite charming because at the height of the panic, when they know there's a murderer out there. The later victims have got no hesitation in going with this man to dark corners of dark squares and courtyards where they know they can't be protected. Good grief, and sir. yet they trusted him. So a charismatic psychopath. Yeah, so he must, he must have been somebody. Maybe somebody who they knew, maybe somebody who fitted in. And, of course, that's the most dangerous type of, ser uh, of killer is if they just fit in, blend into their surroundings. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Can't wait to hear what happens at the next murder scenes, Richard. Cheers. <laughs> Let's go to Annie Chapman. Okay. <laughs> So here we are at the location of murder number two and Richard is going to tell us what happened. 
Well, this is Hanbury Street, and Hanbury Street is where a lady called Annie Chapman was murdered. Now, she, funnily enough, lived on Dorset Street, which was where one of the later victims, Mary Kelly, used to uh, lived as well. So they both lived in the same street, but she was murdered on the 8th of September. Now, by this time, the murders are starting to make people feel uneasy, but the panic hasn't taken over yet. Annie Chapman died because she didn't have fourpence to pay for a bed for in a common lodging house. Virtually all the victims, with the exception of uh, the last victim, lived in common lodging houses. And you paid fourpence for a single bed or eightpence for a double bed. But one lodging house might have uh, up to 100, maybe 200 people in that lodging house, sleeping mostly in dormitories or cubicles. She didn't have the money on the, uh, on the, on the, in the early hours of the morning of the 8th of September, 1888. And so so she was uh, sent out of the lodging house, said no, no pay, no stay. And so we know nothing more about her until at 5.30 in the morning, a lady called Elizabeth Long was passing the doorway of a building that used to stand here, number 29 Hanbury Street. And as she went past, she saw Annie Chapman talking to a man. Now, she was emphatic it was Annie Chapman because she was facing her, so she saw her face. And as she went past, she heard the man say to her, will you? And, the, uh, and she said yes. Nothing more is known about her until half an hour later, 6 o'clock in the morning, a resident of number 29 Hanbury Street, a man called... Uh, uh, I just forgot his name. <laughs> An elderly resident of number 29 Hanbury Street came down, got up, came down the stairs and went out to the backyard, obviously to use the privy. And as he opened the door, he saw something lying on the ground by the door. So he came running out into the street, burst out, and there were three labourers around here. And they, he suddenly came out of this door crying, Men! Men! Come quick! And they went down the passageway and they looked down on the ground and there was the body of Annie Chapman. Her throat had been cut. Uh, some reports said that her head had almost been cut from her body. Uh, she'd also been cut open and then her intestines had been taken out and laid over her shoulder. But this time, the killer had taken a trophy of his kill. He'd cut out and gone off with her womb. And, uh, in a, with her womb. Uh, so he, he went off with Annie Chapman's womb. Yeah. And what, what, what's important about this is, at the inquest into Annie Chapman's death, the, um, the do there was a police divisional surgeon, Dr George Baxter Phillips. He examined the body at the scene of the crime. The point is that to all these murders, the first person to be called would be a doctor because only a doctor could pronounce life extinct. A policeman who found the body or came to the scene couldn't say that someone was dead. Only a doctor could do that. So Dr Baxter Phillips was brought to the scene and he examined the body and he said something quite significantly in, at the inquest into her death. He said that the fact the killer had cut out and gone off with a womb suggested to him that the reason for her murder had been specifically so the killer could acquire that particular part of her anatomy. He went on to say, furthermore, the speed with which he did it and the skill displayed suggested to him that the killer possessed some anatomical knowledge. Now, this was an incredible thing to say because basically he's now suggesting that the killer's got medical knowledge, therefore the killer might be a doctor. And that's how Jack the Ripper got the persona by which he's come down to posterity. He's uh, the, the idea of the man with the swirling cape, the top hat, a gen uh, almost a gentleman, and the one item of apparel he's not without, that shiny black doctor's bag. And, of course, this is where it came from, the fact that he said that the man had medical knowledge. And from that point on, people started to think, oh, he's got medical knowledge, he must be middle class. And thus, the legend, he's not called Jack the Ripper yet, that will come later. Yeah, currently, he's just known either as Leather Apron or the Whitechapel Murderer. But uh, the legend or the, the idea of him is starting to form in people's minds of this gentleman. And I'm sure it's stuck with people since. If I asked anyone now to close their eyes and picture Jack the Ripper, 
that's the image they'd come up with. Wow. And this is where it started. And what's your theory, Richard, as to why he took the womb? I think, uh, personally, I just think it was just something he grabbed hold of. Uh, he was cutting inside the body in the early hours, and he grabbed it, pulled it out, went off with it. There was a theory put forward by the coroner that it was, in fact, an American doctor who'd asked for... He, he'd, he'd actually gone to the pathology departments of several hospitals and asked for specimens of wombs. Uh, it's a bizarre story, actually. He was going to do a publication, and he wanted to give a free womb away with each publication, which, uh, which as free gifts go, it beats a packet of cornflakes and a little plastic <laughs> toy, doesn't it? But, uh, but basically, that, that was the idea, that he wanted to, to do this. Uh, that, that was completely poo-pooed by the medical fraternity, and in the end, the doc even the coroner dropped that theory in the end. Uh, I just think he was cutting round. Uh, it does suggest he might have had medical knowledge and he might have known where the womb was. Or the problem we have is, because we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, we can't really say how many of the theories, how many of the rumours, how many of the things he actually did were def definitely done by him. With the womb as well, there was certainly a market in body parts, and there's also been a suggestion that between the body being found and then it being realised that the womb had gone away, other people had seen the body. So maybe somebody else took the womb and thought, well, I'll blame it on the killer. So again, it's it's all these little bits of the strands that we just can't pull together because Jack the Ripper was never caught, so we don't know who Jack the Ripper was. It's mind blowing. So the market for body parts back then would that be for? scientific experiments on them. Experiments, medical research, all sorts of things. Medical science is making huge steps forward at this time. And so there's a great demand for things. And there's a lot of private practices, well, private doctors going to work. So there, there, there certainly was a market for them. Although body snatching, technically it ended in the 1830s with the Anatomy Act. Uh, it was still going on. Uh, you still have people's bodies getting stolen after death uh, and going on into the 20th century as well. So it's, uh, it, it's, it, it, the market there was there for them. And with, the, with other victims then, were there organs missing from any of those? Yes, Catherine Eddowes was missing her uterus and her left kidney. That was taken from Catherine Eddowes' body. Mary Kelly... There's a, there's, there's a, um, with the last victim, Mary Kelly, there's a mention that a heart was missing. Now, we don't know whether the police, when they said that, whether they meant that a heart was missing from the scene or a heart was missing from the body, whether it was part of this pile of flesh that was put on the bedside table with the Mary Kelly. But certainly this steps things up, and it's with Annie Chapman's murder that people start to panic and you really get unrest in the area. What had happened in the area was that you'd had a huge influx of Jewish refugees had come into the area in the 1880s, and they were, lived differently to everybody else around here. And so consequently, when these murders started, people started, started to think, well, it's a new type of crime that we haven't seen before, so perhaps it's one of the immigrants who's responsible. Blame so straight away, so the immigrant gets blamed, blame the poor, blame the immigrants. So that starts, and certainly after this murder, we do know there was anti-Jewish rioting in the area, and that the police then had to flood into the area, not so much to catch the killer, but to bring the crowds under control, because crowds literally were coming to the scene. And one of the other things we know is that neighbours on either side spotted an opportunity, and later that day they were renting their windows out at a penny a time, so people could actually go and look down at the murder site. So, wow. uh, I say, people were making money from it even then. We've got these nice street lights in this day and age. I'm just curious, how dark would it have been back then? Some of the streets would have been reasonably well lit. The main roads certainly would have been well lit, but a lot of the back streets didn't have any lighting at all. 
And this is one of the reasons why he got away with it, because it's a dark street, it's pitch black. And of course, if he knows, if he's even got a rudimentary knowledge, well, even not a rudimentary knowledge, if he ducks down an alleyway and goes into a dark alley, nobody's going to meet, nobody's going to see him. And in fact, one of the police officers on the case said that after one of the recent murders, my men threw a circle around the murder site to stop people getting near the murder site. He said within five minutes, we found 50 people inside the circle who'd come in through two passageways. My men didn't even know about <laughs> So that's how intricate this area was. Right. Appreciate that. Let's go on to the next yes, one then. <laughs> so here we are at the location of victim number three, Elizabeth Stride. So what happened to Elizabeth Richard? Well, Elizabeth Stride's an uh, interesting victim because... We have quite a few people saw her in this street. This street's called Berners, or it's called Henrique Street today, but it was called Berners Street in 1888. And in fact, at 12.45, a man named Israel Schwartz came walking down Berners Street from Commercial Road up there. And he passed, there was a gateway round about here called Duckfield Yard. And as he walked past the gateway, he saw a woman standing in the gateway. And a man suddenly took the woman and tried to drag her into the street. And she resisted. So he spun around and threw her to the ground and began to attack her. Now, Israel Schwartz thought it was a domestic argument and he didn't want to get involved. So he crossed over the road to avoid doing so. And there was a man standing on the opposite side of the road smoking a pipe. And at that point, somebody said Lipsky, which was a derogatory term. Israel Schwartz was Jewish and it was a derogatory term towards the Jewish population of the area. But either way, someone said it and he thought the man on the other side followed him. So he made his way quickly down the street and managed to lose the man and he went home. It's highly probable he's one of the very few people who actually saw the early stages of a Jack the Ripper murder because for two violent attacks to take place on the same woman at the same spot in just 15 minutes, well, it's too much of a coincidence. And we know that because at one o'clock in the morning, a man named Louis Deemschutz came down here with a costermonger's barrow and a pony. Now, he was actually the steward of a club that used to stand over here, the International Working Men's Educational Club. And as he came down the street, he turned his pony and cart into Duckfield Yard. And the moment he did so, the pony shied and pulled left. Something had disturbed it. Now, he looked into the darkness and he saw something lying on the ground. So he reached out with his horsewhip to try and lift it up, and he couldn't. So he jumped down and struck a match, and he saw it was a woman lying on the ground. Now, his next action has never been satisfactorily explained. For some reason, he thought it was his wife and she was drunk. So he went into the club to get other members to help him to pick the woman he thought was his wife up. But when he, went to, when he went into the club, he found his wife was in the club. So he went to the other members and said, there's a woman on the ground outside, she's dead or she's drunk. I'm not sure which. So they took a candle and they went back downstairs and they were able to see that a pool of blood or a stream of blood was running from her throat. Now, the interesting thing here was that only her throat, only her throat had been cut. The rest of the body hadn't been touched. So what the police surmised was that this was the beginning of a Ripper murder, but Deemschutz had interrupted the killer. Uh, in fact, you can picture what's happened. He's murdered her. Uh, the carriage then comes down the corner. He's about to start the mutilations when the carriage turns into the yard, and that disturbs him. So he jumps back into the shadow, and it's that sudden movement that startles the pony. Remember, the pony shies and pulls left. Now, had Louis Deemschutz acted differently at that moment, probably we would never have heard the name Jack the Ripper because the probability is the killer was still in the yard. Had he raised the alarm then, the killer probably would have been taken. But he didn't. He thought it was his wife, went into the club. That gave the killer these vital minutes to get out of the yard and make his way to the city of London where he made up for being interrupted with a vengeance with his next victim. But she's the third victim. Her, only her throat was cut. Uh, the rest of the body wasn't been mutilated. 
tragically or sadly or ironically, historians or some of the historians on the case now refer to her as Lucky Lestride because she only had a throat cut. What's lucky about that? I don't know. (laughs) How many of the attacks were interrupted? And out of all of the murders, how many witnesses were there total? There were quite a few witnesses. I mean, probably the witnesses run into double figures. Uh, Now, whether they saw the crime, uh, most people didn't see the crime. We still, we can't say 100% if if, uh, Israel Schwartz saw saw the crime taking place or not. Uh, It seems to be that he did. Uh, But either way, there were witnesses who saw the victims with men. Uh, We'll come to the later victim, Mary Kelly, where George Hutchinson saw her on Commercial Street uh, go off with a man. Uh, There's other witnesses in this street, for example, uh, Burner Street continued down here and uh, a witness saw her standing under the lamp with a man uh, and they walked in this direction. So again, that person was seen. So there were people who saw the victims with men shortly before their murders. But of course, we can't say with any degree of 100% certainty that what they saw was the face of Jack the Ripper. Wow. So often we see profile pics of suspects. Did the witness accounts match each other or were they at odds? And was a profile pick ever orchestrated for Jack? Some, some witnesses, some witnesses uh, versions or uh, descriptions did tally, others didn't. Uh, a general, general images, or not photo fit, because they didn't have photo fits as such at the time, but certainly sketches of the murderer started appearing in the newspapers. And uh, again, quite a few of those were just standard Victorian villains, almost like pantomime villains appearing in the newspapers. Uh, the honest truth is that the problem with witness identifications is witness memories are notoriously inaccurate. People, people start to fill in the blanks of what they don't know. Uh, so consequently, but um, as far as we can tell, if he was seen, he was probably around about five foot six. He was probably had um, darkish hair. Some say he had a foreign appearance. Some say he had the appearance of a sailor. Uh, some say he had a moustache, some say he didn't. Uh, the problem with witnesses is they're looking back and obviously they've seen somebody in the dark. Remember, it's dark around here at the time. They've caught a quick glimpse of somebody and, of course, they're thinking back over several days to what they might have seen and then they're filling in those blanks of what they might have seen. Uh, the problem is the Ripper just got away with it because he was lucky. He was able to kill the killing and he didn't bump into anybody as he left the scenes of his crimes, as is evidence from Louis Diemschutz here, leaving him that vi- those vital seconds to get out of the yard and make good his escape. Indeed, memory is malleable and you get all kinds of crazy accounts from witnesses after the fact, don't you? Very much so, yeah. 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 Now, I've heard a rumour, a theory of the Ripper being related to the royal family. Who were the royal family at that period of time and what is that rumour? The royal family, the Queen of course was Queen Victoria. Uh, The the royal suspect is Prince Albert Edward Victor. Now Prince Albert Edward Victor was the Duke of Clarence. Uh, He was Queen Victoria's grandson. He was the heir presumptive to the throne of England so he was the second in line to the throne. Uh, And uh, now he, he turns up in suspect, as a suspect from the late 1960s on. There's all sorts of rumours about him. And in consequence of that, uh, he, he's been a, I mean, obviously a member of the royal family being Jack the Ripper. That's a favoured theory. 
We know his movements at the time of the murders. He wasn't in London at the time of the murders. When Elizabeth Strand was murdered, he was up at Balmoral in Scotland. Now, even today, you'd be hard pushed to get from Balmoral to the east end of London, commit a murder, and then get back for breakfast the next day. Even today, you'd be hard pushed to do that. Then it was almost impossible. So he, it's almost certain he wasn't Jack the Ripper. And, of course, then the other theory is that it was the royal physician, Sir William Gull, that, he was, that he'd suffered a stroke and his mind had turned. He was, again, he, he, he just doesn't fit the bill. What's interesting about the Duke of Clarence is that he, he actually died in a pandemic. Uh, there was a, just the year after the Jack the Ripper murders, Russian flu swept across the world. And, uh, and he died in, in that pandemic. So he died in Russia. Had he not died, he would have been the uh, King of England. Wow. So he could have had King Jack. <laughs> <laughs> so who are your lead suspects, Richard? My lead suspects, um, the two leading officers on the case, uh, and these are the two officers who worked the case. One was Dr. Robert Anderson. He was the head of the Criminal Investigation Department, the CID. Uh, his, uh, another man was a man called Chief Inspector Donald Sutherland Swanson. Now, Swanson was the man who in early September was put in charge of assessing all the information on the case. He had the big picture. Now, Anderson, in his memoirs in 1910, states that they knew who Jack the Ripper was. The, uh, he says, undiscovered murders are a rare occurrence, and the crimes known as the Jack the Ripper murders were not undiscovered. And he says, in saying he was a low-born Polish Jew living in the heart of the area, I am staking an ascertained fact. He also says, when the one person who ever gained a clear view of the face of the murderer was confronted with our suspect, he unhesitatingly identified him, but refused to testify. So Anderson says that they caught someone. He says there's a witness identification. He doesn't name the suspect. He doesn't name the witness. Uh, it could well have been Israel Schwartz that he was talking about, or it could have been a man we'll come to later on, Joseph Avender. Either way, a copy of his memoirs got into the hands of Donald Sutherland Swanson. Now remember, he's the man who's got the big picture. He's reading and assessing all the information. And in his copy of the memoirs, he made notes in the margin. And he pencils into the margin, Kosminski. And he tells us they picked him up, that there was an identification. Again, he doesn't name the witness, but he says the witness wouldn't testify because the witness was Jewish and he wouldn't testify against one of his own kind as this would be the means of the murderer being hanged, which he didn't want on his mind. So consequently, uh, Swanson says it was Kosminski. There's only one Kosminski. He also says he went into an asylum. And there's only one Kosminski in the asylum records who fits that bill. And it's a man called Aaron Kosminski. And he goes into Colney Hatch Asylum, northwest London, in 1891. He's transferred in 1894 to Leavesden Asylum. And he dies there in uh, 19... Uh, well, uh, 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 I think it's 1919. Uh, now... These are the two leading officers on the case, and if they knew the evidence against all the suspects, and if they thought the evidence was strongest against Kosminski, we've got to take them seriously. So did Schwartz or Kosminski have proficiency with a knife then? You said the doctor thing earlier. This is what we don't know. Uh, we, he certainly didn't have medical training. Uh, there's there's rumours that he might have been a hairdresser and he might have had some medical... He was Polish, so there's uh, some evidence he might have had medical training in Poland. But we don't know. Uh, the honest truth is we don't know. We, we can't even say with any degree of certainty that Kosminski was, 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 was Jack the Ripper. Mm. Uh, but, as I say, it's interesting that they would have known the evidence against him. The problem we've got, and this is why... I always hesitate to sort of name Jadra, is there's no evidence left anymore. All the police evidence has disappeared. So we know they suspected people, but we don't know why they suspected them. And if we don't have the evidence, we can't say with a degree of certainty who Jack the Ripper was. Right, fascinating. On to number four then. 
So here we are in Mitre Square, the site of the murder, victim number four, Jack the Ripper. We're talking Catherine Eddowes. And she might have died here. <laughs> she, <laughs> might, yeah. uh, well, she actually did. <laughs> Although, <laughs> no, she, she did. Shouldn't be laughing over death, should we? <laughs> this is one of the interesting ones because, again, there's a witness, just like with Elizabeth Stride our, at our previous stop, there's a witness who sees her 15 minutes before her murder. And that's a man called Joseph Lavender. Now, at 1.30 in the morning, he left a club out on Duke's Place outside the square with two friends, and they passed a man and a woman standing at one of the entrances into Mitre Square. The two friends were disgusted by the sight of them. One of them said, I don't like going home on my own when I see those characters out. And they crossed over the road. Joseph Lavender, though, was a little less disgusted, a bit more observant, and he actually stayed quite close. And he took a look at them. He didn't see the woman's face, but when shown the clothing of Catherine Eddowes at the mortuary, he said that was the clothing the woman was wearing. But he did see the man's face. And this is where we get another description, possible description of Jack the Ripper, about five foot six. He has a fair hair, fair moustache, the overall appearance of a sailor. Now that's one, just after 1.30. 1.45 in the morning, Police Constable Watkins came into the square from Mitre Street over here. He turned into the square, and just over in the far corner of the square, he found the body of Catherine Eddowes. And it was a horrific sight. Her throat had been cut. Again, uh, head had almost been cut from the body. She'd been ripped open. The killer had then plunged his hands into the body, cut round and pulled out anything that came to hand. The intestines were sprawled over the shoulder. Missing from the body was the uterus and the left kidney. But also, this time, the killer had targeted the face and he cut deep V's into the cheeks. Deep V's into each cheek, deep V's into the eyelids. He then brought the knife down and nicked through one of the ears. He'd then come down and taken through the tip of the nose. Uh, and then he'd gone off with the uterus and the left kidney. They were missing from the body. Now, the fact he appeared to have targeted the ears became quite significant because the day before this murder, the police at Scotland Yard had been handed a letter that on the 27th of September had been sent to the Central News Agency, which was on New Bridge Street in the City of London. That letter was addressed to the boss, Central News Office, the city, and it said, Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed and they look so clever and talked about being on the right track. It goes on to gloat about, next time I operate, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for the jolly, wouldn't you? And then he said, uh, almost finished at the end, he says, and I want to get my knife so nice and sharp, I want to get to work again right away if I get a chance. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Within 24 hours of that letter being sent, given to the police, this murder had happened. He got to work right away. Here, he appears to have targeted the ears of uh, one of the victims as well. So the police decided to release that letter to the public and it was the letter's signature that caught the public imagination because it was signed, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. And in early October, that name is starting, it starts to be used for the, uh, for the Whitechapel murders and it catches on. 
and within a week the police are inundated with letters purported to come from Jack the Ripper. So that almost guarantees fame now for the murders because he's now got a name, Jack the Ripper. Immortalised. So the police have got this evidence then of the letter. From analysing the letter then, I mean the way you spoke it sounded very English, yet we've looked at suspects that could possibly be not from the UK. What's your interpretation of the letter as evidence giving clues as to the nationality of the killer? Well, the interesting thing about the letter is there's a lot of Americanisms. Uh, people did notice a lot of Americanisms in the letter. So, for example, dear boss. Boss, that's an American term. Uh, so th there's a lot of sort of American terminology. So this then fed into talk at the time that there were lots of American suspects coming up. Uh, a famous one being Dr. Francis Tumblety, who was arrested round about this time uh, and then was released on bail, skipped bail and went back to America. Uh, so the, 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 this has led to suggestions that the killer could have been American. Of course, that's always supposing that the person who sent that letter was the person who committed the murders. Uh, the police, within a few days, did not believe it had come from the killer. Most experts today don't think it was written by the killer. The police believed it was the work of an enterprising London journalist. And a lot of police officers said they even knew the identity of the journalist. And one police officer, uh, Chief Inspector Littlechild, even said that the journalist was, it was one of two journalists who actually worked at the Central News Agency, the ones who'd received the letter in the first place. Uh, he says it could have been uh, Thomas Bulling, or the manager, John Moore, might have been the, uh, the, 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 uh, the person who sent the letter. We don't know, but the evidence suggests it wasn't written by the killer. How would the letter writer have known that the ears were going to come off on the next victim? Well, that's interesting, because uh, he probably wouldn't. It was probably a complete coincidence, that, 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 because he hadn't actually targeted these. He hadn't actually cut He said in the letter, next time I'm up, I shall clip the lady's ears off and send the police officers just for the jolly, wouldn't you? He, had, he, he hadn't actually tried to cut the ears off. He, it's probably as he did the facial mutilations, he cut through the lobe of the ear and it actually fell into the clothing uh, and was found in the clothing. So it was probably just complete coincidence that had happened. But of course, once that had happened uh, and he had got to work straight away and he did seem, to have target, uh, did seem to have targeted the ears, the police had to take the letter seriously, even if it was just to find out who wrote it and then eliminate them as a suspect. And what do you think was the motivation behind doing all these V's on the face? Uh, again, it was literally, I, I, my belief is it was just facial mutilation. Uh, several people, um, uh, Randy Williams, who's an American private investigator, he's convinced that it shows a lot of sort of, uh, if you like, almost, uh, what's the word, uh, I've forgotten the word for it now, but it, it's almost like it's a religious killing, that, uh, that basically you're, you're having messages left. And, you can, and people can read things into things. I think it was, just, it was just targeting the face and he cut into the face. But other people have seen other things. And as I've, I always say about Jack the Ripper, we can't say anything is certain because we don't know who Jack the Ripper was. So we can't say anything about him is a certainty. So my theory could be, is probably as valuable as anybody else's theory. Their theory is probably as valuable as mine. It's... And how dominant was religious belief in society at that time? Uh, it wasn't very. It wasn't particularly dominant, uh, but certainly, if there's underground occult movements going on, it could have been dominant in in, in occult movements. So there's a lot of occultism seen in the Jack the Ripper crimes as well, and lots of people at the time were starting to read. Well, maybe there's sort of rich. That's the word I was looking for. Ritualistic. That there could be a ritualistic element to it, and that this is some sort of ritual. So, uh, as I say, we, we we can never say for certain. I I always sit on the fence in that because I think everybody's opinion on Jack the Ripper 
is valuable. And everybody, no matter what their opinion, no matter how mad I might think it is, these people often put an extra element in that makes you think, oh yeah, that's a possibility. And that's, if, if there's any chance of solving the Jack the Ripper case, that's how we're going to do it, by thinking outside the box. And was there a theory that Jack the Ripper could be a Freemason? <laughs> there was indeed. Uh, this theory was put, well, this, this theory started cropping up every so often. But in fact, the big theory behind it was Stephen Knight's book, The Final Solution. Uh, and he actually, it, basically, it, it's a Masonic conspiracy to, uh, to silence Mary Kelly, because Mary Kelly was the servant of a lady called Annie Elizabeth Crook, who's secretly married Prince Albert Edward Victor, the heir presumptive to the throne of England. He's had a child by her, and so the Freemasons are sent out to uh, eliminate the threat of the women blackmailing the royal family and blackmailing the government. Uh, again, it's a fantastic theory. Stephen Knight's book is the best-selling book probably there's ever been on Jack the Ripper, uh, The Final Solution. Whether it's true, well, it's for the people who read it to decide. And how many books have you written about Jack the Ripper, Richard? I've written... Well, I've actually written two full books on Jack the Ripper, and I've written uh, entries about him in various walking tour books, etc. So, uh, sorry, three full books. I wrote one last year. I forgot about that one. So, uh, yeah. So what are your books called? My books are, my first one was Uncovering Jack the Ripper's London. My next one was Jack the Ripper the Casebook. And my final one was Edgar's Guide to Walking Jack the Ripper's London. Wow, and are they available worldwide on Amazon? They're available worldwide on Amazon, uh, uh, all good bookshops, and one or two bad ones in Soho as well. Fantastic, thank you. All right, so here we are at location number five, and Richard is going to lay it down. Well, this is the epicenter, really, of the Jack the Ripper murders. This is Spitalfields, and this magnificent church we're standing outside, this is Christchurch Spitalfields. And just over on the corner there is a pub that's famous throughout the world. That's the Ten Bells. Uh, and that really is a pub, it's claimed inside that all the victims drank inside that all pub. All of them? All the victims drank inside the pub. Wow. And this is the area they would have known, because most of the victims lived in this very short section over here. And number five was in a street that used to stand over there, a street called Dorset Street. And that had one of the worst reputations in London, so badly. It was actually called the worst street in London. A reputation for what? What do you mean by the worst? Vice, villainy, gangland crimes in there. You had prize fighters, boxers living down there. Uh, you had what, what would be called pimps today, but were called bullies at the time, uh, were operating down there. And you had common lodging houses. And it was only a short street, but it had lots of common lodging houses. And probably thousands of people a day passed through that street. Wow. But it was just in a courtyard off it called Miller's Court that a 25-year-old girl named Mary Kelly lived. And she would be the one who would be the fifth victim, the final victim of Jack the Ripper. Oh, dear. So how frequent did um, the victims drink here? Do you know how often they came here? Well, the honest truth is, we, d we don't know for certain that yeah. they did. Uh, ah. But, it, 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 I mean, there were so many pubs to choose from in the area. Yeah. I mean, you had, just from here, you could have reached at least six pubs at the time. Yeah. Uh, this one over here, the Queen's Head was on the next corner down. You had pubs going all the way along Dorset Street. But traditionally, that, that, was, that would have been a pub they would have drunk. And it was certainly there at the time. And it certainly was on the main street. And given the victims probably were all prostitutes. Uh, it would have been a sort of a, a pickup joint as well, so it's a place to go sort of right. go and meet with clients and so yeah. on and so forth. So they would have certainly drunk in there, and, and I think we, I say, we can say with almost a degree of certainty that that was their pub. And out of all of those pubs from back then then, is this the only one still standing or are they all still standing? 
No. Uh, that, that's the only one that's still a pub. The Queen's Head still exists on the corner, but it's only the building now. There is a pub a little further down called Culpepper's, which was the Princess Alice, uh, so that's still standing. Yeah. You've got the White Hart out on Whitechapel High Street, which is still standing. But on the whole, in fact, a lot of the pubs have gone, really, in the last 10, 15 years. Right. This area has seen an amazing amount of change in the last few years. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's in, in some ways, I, I've been doing this since 1982, and in a lot of ways, it's lost its character. Oh. I, mean, you know, I mean, when I started doing this, you know, you could you'd drink in the ten bells, and you'd still have the prostitutes lining in the streets around here. <laughs> and my, my favourite memory of them is they used to stand by the speed bumps because if they stood by the speed bumps, the cars had to slow down. <laughs> and so you'd actually see them sort of looking under the windscreen and the cars would bump up. And wow. then sometimes you see them go toddling up. Down the... well, they used to drink in that pub. And I used to make my halfway stop on my tours in that pub. Okay. And, I, <laughs> and the prost- I, I got to know them quite well. Yeah. And they would used to see, when I'd be leaving, they'd say things like, see you later then, love, same again tonight, same again tonight. <laughs> but all, all that character's gone now. It's, oh. It really has lost its character. And of course it was the, um, if you like, it was just, 1982, obviously the Crays weren't around, but you're just coming out of the Cray period, and a lot of the people who lived around here remember the Crays as well. So it was, yeah. a, it was a fantastic community. Right. And of course, that's, that, that's all changed now. It's, it's been gentrified. Yeah. And uh, as I say, a, a lot of that character has gone from the area. So are we going to go to the location then where the fifth victim died? Well, Is that where you're going to tell that story? Well, we can't actually go to the location because that's, that's it there. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. So you want to tell that story so, here yeah. then? So should we do that story yes. here? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So the fifth victim was a lady called Mary Kelly or Mary Jane Kelly or as she preferred it, Mary Jeanette Kelly. She liked to sort of give herself that little continental flair to her name. Now, she was the youngest of Jack the Ripper's victims and she's the one we know the least about. We know oh. next to nothing. She was 25 years old okay. and we know next to nothing about her. Uh, what we do know is what she told other people about herself. So I think they've come for me now. So <laughs> I'm just, just going to keep a low profile here. and I'll be I'm just... <laughs> So Mary Kelly was 25 years old, so she was the youngest of Jack the Ripper's victims. Uh, there's a tradition that she was the most attractive as well. Uh, difficult to say because we don't actually have any photographs of her, we just have press images of her. But she's the most enigmatic of them, we, don't, we know very, very little about her. And consequently, she's the one in all the films that the whole mystery surrounds around. She's always played by the leading actress, the best looking actress. So Mary Kelly is, <laughs> is always seen as being the attractive victim uh, in, in the Jack the Ripper uh, 5. So, her murder took place on the 9th of November 1888 and it started on this stretch of road outside the railings here. In the early hours of the morning a man named George Hutchinson, a labourer, he was walking past these railings here, walking down Commercial Street when Mary Kelly walked past him and she asked him to lend her a tanner which was sixpence and he said no he'd spent out at Romford uh, and uh, he didn't have that amount of money. So she laughed and she said well I'll just have to get it some other way won't I and she went off along Commercial Street and a man was coming from the opposite direction and she stopped by the man, uh, tapped her on the shoulder, she turned to look at him and he said something to her and they started laughing. And then the man, Mary Kelly, put the man's arm around her waist and brought him back along Commercial Street. And Hutchinson said that he actually stooped down and looked under the man's hat as he walked past. And the man gave him a sinister glare as he went past. And then Hutchinson watched them go into Dorset Street. Now, Dorset Street used to be over on this side of the road, where this modern building is today. It's now been completely obliterated. Nothing of it survives. And she lived in Miller's Court, which was a little arched turn off Dorset Street. And so Hutchinson watched her lead the man into that court, and then he waited outside for 45 minutes. Nothing happened, so he went home to bed. Now, doctors said that Mary Kelly was murdered 
round about four o'clock in the morning. And this would be seen to be borne out by two of her neighbours who said that round about four, they were both woken by a cry of murder. But it was a common cry in the area. <laughs> now, that might sound really strange. Well, common cry in the area. Uh, in fact, when people got into drunken fights, when there was domestic violence, people often cried, murder, murder. Oh. It didn't mean someone was being murdered. Right. And just like today, when people hear domestic violence, they don't want to get involved. People just didn't. People ignored those sort of cries. And that's what the neighbours did. They completely ignored the cries. It so happened Mary Kelly was 29 shillings in rent arrears. And at 10.45 the next morning, Saturday, on, on Friday the 9th of November, so 10.45 the next morning on the 9th of November, her landlord, John McCarthy, wanted his money. So he sent his assistant, Thomas Bowyer, around to get the money. And he went round and he banged on the door. No answer. So he thought, she's in there, she just doesn't want to pay. So he went round to a broken window pane and he pulled the curtain aside and he looked into the room. Seconds later, he... John McCarthy had a shop over on Dorset Street. Seconds later, white as a sheep, Bowie comes bursting into the shop saying, Governor, Governor, I, 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 I banged on the door. I, I, I could not make anyone answer. I looked through the window and I saw a lot of blood. And McCarthy said, you don't mean that, do you? He said, I do, I do. And they went back and McCarthy looked into the room. And the sight that he saw in that room, he said later, I'd heard much of the Whitechapel murders, but I never expected I'd see a sight such as this. It looked more like the work of a devil than the work of a man. And what had happened, Mary Kelly had been completely skinned down to the bone. She'd been cut open. On the bedside table, there was a pile of flesh. Skin had gone off her face. In fact, Walter Dew, who's one of the first police inspectors to come to the scene, he said the thing that caught him the most when he looked into that room were the poor girl's eyes. He said they were wide open and staring at me as if in terror. Oh, bloody hell. And that, that, was, uh, and that was the last, as far as we know, the last Jack the Ripper murder. Oh. It's a, there's a, it, the interesting thing about this murder is they, they, got, a, they got a photographer in to take a photograph. And this is the only one of Jack the Ripper's victims who was photographed at the scene of the crime. And that photograph still exists to this day. And it really is a horrible photograph. You look at it and, first of all, you think... Is it, well, first of all, you don't think it's a body. It just looks like sort of a pile of flesh that's piled up. And it really is a horrible photograph. But it's one of the very first crime scene photographs we have. And wow. it's the Mary Kelly photograph in Miller's Court. Wow. So, Richard, do you get used to telling these gruesome details? <laughs> do you know, you, you, you do tend to get immune to it. I mean, I, I've, I've sat there writing it out whilst I've been eating dinner. I've been talking about it. Uh, very, very funny story. Where my, my, youngest, my eldest son, uh, when he was about six or seven, I went to pick him up from school one day. And, and at the time, I'd been doing sort of a lot of work on writing books on Jack the Ripper. And I'd done a documentary on Jack the Ripper. And this is all he'd seen me do sort of for, for, for about a year and a half, just talking about Jack the Ripper and I went to pick him up from school one afternoon and his teacher said can I just have a quick word and I thought oh no what's he done now and she said oh she said I've got to tell you she said we did a what does my dad do today at school she said and all the children were standing up saying you know my, my dad's a plumber my dad's an accountant my dad's uh, this she said your your son stood up proud as punch and said my dad's Jack the Ripper <laughs> 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 so as I say, it's sort of hands down. But you do, you just, you, you get, you, and sometimes you have to pull yourself back because you think, hang on, I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about real people here. This is one of the sad things about the Jack the Ripper mystery is the victims tend to get usurped by the perpetrator of the crimes. And of course, these were five women who had lives. I mean, tragic lives, horrible lives. 
uh, but there were five women with lives who didn't deserve to be murdered the way they were murdered. And that's, that's, that's the thing about it. People so, tend to forget the victims and yeah. remember the perpetrators. Same with many serial killer stories, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. All right, so what an absolutely fascinating tour we've had today. Thanks to Richard coming out and spending these hours with us. If you are interested in this tour, please contact Richard. All of his contact details are in the description box below this video. And Richard, huge thank you. What is your preferred method of people contacting you? Probably through the website, which is ripatour.com. So it's ripatour.com and you can get to us through there and you can also join our Facebook, get us on Facebook through there as well. And what is the name of your Facebook? It is Jack the Ripper Tours. Brilliant, all right, huge thank you. for Lovely to meet you. Yeah, okay. cheers, thank you, Richard. <laughs>